Open up your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As we once again come to this sermonic epistle, Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to back up just a little bit and start at chapter 5 with verse 11. And we're going to read to verse 3 in chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, And this will we do if God permit. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, many of you know that I spent a great deal driving this week from here to Detroit, and then from Detroit to Grand Rapids, and then helping uh, my dear son-in-law who's with us today and my daughter uh, pack and, and move back down to Indianapolis, and along my way, there was one particular highway billboard that made a distinct impression upon me, and the billboard had a picture, perhaps you've seen it before, of a stone-faced soldier. It was a billboard for the Marines, and it was just a picture of this stone-faced, cold-hardened soldier on a black backdrop, and it just had one sentence. We do not accept applications, only commitments. This brought back flashbacks to my mind when I saw it when I was a teenager and I joined our local school's wrestling team. And I quickly found out on the wrestling team that that coach did not accept applications, but only sold out commitments. I'll never forget the first week of practice just into the first couple days, after putting us through grueling uh, running, marathons, climbing stairs, to the point that all of us, our legs were shaking, we thought our lungs were going to collapse. 
and he puts us into this small room. It's called the mat room, and this is a room that's got mats all on the floor and mats on the wall so nobody gets hurt when they're throwing each other and slinging each other around. And we're in this room that's so thick with fog and you couldn't even breathe because of the fresh body odor that was in there. We're all in there for five minutes just trying to get our breath and in walked, like a drill sergeant, Mr. Pittman. And when Mr. Pittman walked in the room, it was so thick with this air. When he opened the door, you could feel fresh air and everyone was like, oh, relief, and actually caught a little bit of fresh air. And there we were lying... Uh, a bunch of young guys who just finished this grueling exercise and uh, in comes in Mr. Pittman. Now Mr. Pittman, he was a guy that was only five foot five. He was, he was a little guy. But he was a guy that was chiseled, disciplined muscle. And even though he was small, he could take any one of us newbies and twist us up like a pretzel until we're on the mat crying for our mothers. He was someone that you would not want to have to reckon with. And so Mr. Pittman, if I remember right, I'm going to just tell you kind of how it was and how this all works in with where we're going today in today's message. He walks in the room, and I remember him just looking at us, some of us leaning up against the wall, some of us just lay prostrate on the floor. And he said something to the effect, you, all of you guys, are miserably, grossly out of shape. You are an embarrassment to yourselves. You're an embarrassment to this team that you seek to join. I remember him saying distinctly, in fact, I could probably go down the street to the elementary school and get some boys off the playground who would be in better shape than you. In fact, unless something doesn't change quickly, he threatened, I'm I'm prepared to go to the principal of this fine school and tell him that the young men in this school are so beyond repair that we may not have a wrestling team this year. You are embarrassingly out of shape. So much... I remember he challenged us. He said, so much, you're so out of shape, instead of another hour of the repeated exercises that you just went through, I'm going to walk out of this door and many of you need to follow me, go get a cold drink of water and take the rest of the day off to recuperate because tomorrow we're going to do the exact same thing. And everyone thought for a moment, thank the Lord. This ended this day. And then Mr. Pittman, as he's walking toward the door, he stops and he turns around and he said something to the effect, I know that's what you think you need, but that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to do exactly for the next one hour what we've been doing for the last one hour. And if anyone wants to follow me out this door so they don't have to go through it, I don't want to see you when I come back in five minutes. I'm going to go to my office, I'm going to get a cold drink of water, and I'm going to relax myself, and I'm going to come back. And if you can't take it, that's fine. You just won't make the team. Just accept your defeat, and don't be here when I come back. Now what was it that Mr. Pittman was doing in that? What he was doing is he was attempting, wasn't he, to separate the wannabes, the applicants, from those who really were willing to make whatever sacrifices necessary to make the commitment. Or to use biblical language, what he was attempting to do was to separate the tares from the weeds. 
And that experience that is shared with you from my teenage years has everything to do with where we are this morning in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The reason it does is because we noticed last week that in chapter 5, where we read today, verses 11 through 14, that this inspired writer, why he was in mid-stride of a sermon of preaching the glorious doctrine of Jesus Christ as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, what did we notice last week, beloved? He stopped, he paused, and he begins to inject a rebuke regarding their immaturity. Then, instead, the, instead of meeting them where they were, the inspired writer didn't continue or want to be, uh, continue to feed them milk. Instead, what he did is after he acknowledged, you are so immature, such as babies, you can't even take the meat, he gives them a rebuke in chapter 6, and then he moves on to chapter 7 to begin to feed them meat. He's doing what? He's pressing them... He's showing them, I'm not going to allow you to stay in a state of immaturity. You must press on. You must continue on in maturity. To him, this inspired writer, to remain in stagnant infancy that he described in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, that they were exhibiting, was not at all an option. Thus pressing on in maturity was in fact what he was requiring of them and they needed to be told now's the time that you need to get up on your feet, you need to grow, you need to mature, and you need to grow and mature in the exercising of your senses. Chapter 5. What were the senses? You may recall they were the use of the faculty of discernment and judgment. They had allowed themselves to not be pressed in order or challenged to exercise the faculty of their discernment and judgment. And they were fine with that. But like Mr. Pittman, like the military drill sergeant, the inspired writer, knowing what's best for them, he comes into as if it were the mat room and says, I know that really all you can really take is milk but I'm going to give you meat because that's what's best for you. How are we going to approach the text today? Well, I think it naturally kind of unfolds itself as you see in your sermon notes with a notice that there's an imperative, an imperative meaning that it is necessary. There's an imperative to mature in the first half of verse 1. And then the second half of verse number 1 into verse number 2, he shows us very practically, the steps to mature. So he notices, hey, there's an imperative to mature, that here's the steps in order for you to mature. And then in verse 3, he shows that reliance upon God is everything in order to have any hopes of maturing. The imperative to mature, the steps to mature, and the reliance upon God in order to mature. So let's move forward here in verse number 1 under the heading, the imperative to mature. He says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. The authorized version, the old authorized version says perfection. Really, a better translation would be maturity. It captures the baseline idea. Because the baseline idea here in the first half of verse number one 
for these professing Christians who have been converted out of Judaism to Christianity is that they need to press on unto maturity. And there's a couple things that we'll benefit from if we take notice of it. It is vitally important for us to fully appreciate the weight of what I'm calling the imperative that's in the first half of the verse. That is, the urgency, the unconditional requirement that's there. Therefore, it's what that, that, that big conjunction in the Greek word is stressing. It's an imperative. It's an unconditional requirement. I believe it's obvious when we consider a couple things regarding the grammatical structure of it. After explaining their immaturity, he uses, as you see in your notes, this word that connects this imperative mood, this is necessary, this is vital, this has to be done without conditions. He does it based upon what he's already recognized about them in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. It's in direct consequence and in response to their current situation as immature babies in the word of righteousness. You recall that's a full understanding and appreciation of what happened in the doctrine of justification and how to apply that and live that out in life in one's life. So in direct connection with what he's observed about them, being immature in the word of righteousness fully appreciating, understanding, and applying how they're justified and how they're saved. In connection with that, therefore, it's imperative that you move on to maturity. It's not an option. Observe also that this conjunction, therefore, is strategically placed to directly link what he has said about them already in verses 11 through 14 with the warnings that are the most soberest warnings in all the New Testament that comes in verses 4 and 6, where he says, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Observing what we have observed in chapter 5, verses 11 14, about where you want to remain, and knowing the truth of what we see in verses 4 and 6, Therefore, there's the imperative, it is absolutely necessary that you get up, shake off the lethargical infancy, and begin to exercise the faculty of your judgment that God has given you onward to maturity. There is, in other words, an absolute plea with them to wake up and to begin to mature as Christians. And if they don't, they ought not to be surprised that out of any of them in the church that may apostatize from the church, those who remain in infancy will certainly be among them. Now this sort of imperative soberness, uh, this severity, I think it demands that we recognize as you see in your notes, that it has with it significant moral implications. Moral implications that demand responsibility. This inspired writer keenly understood that for these believers not to press on under maturity could in fact, may indeed, 
result in disaster. And what we gather next in the text is that the writer considered, at least in part, also his own personal moral responsibility to help lead them and to teach them unto maturity. And this denotes a dual responsibility, as you see in your notes. Therefore, leaving the principle of the doctrine of Christ, notice what he says, let us... Let us go on unto maturity. He doesn't recognize, in other words, as a minister of the gospel placed in the charge of these people and care of these people's souls, that he's going to bring to the surface their great immaturity and then say, okay, now y'all need to just get that figured out and worked out. No, he uses this personal plural pronoun to say, let us now go on unto maturity. Now, certainly, beloved, it would be wrong for us to interpret his use of this plural pronoun in the singular, let us go on to maturity, to indicate somehow or another that he lacked maturity. We would know that that would be a wrong interpretation. He has already from chapters 1 all the way through chapter 5 demonstrated he's not immature. He knows the things of Christ. He's trying to communicate to them the, the great fountains of truth of Christ. And he's just rebuked them for being immature. So surely it's, it's silly to think that he's implying that he himself needs to uh, step up the game with them and become mature. No, I believe what is really truly at heart here, as I said, he sees within himself a responsibility to help them mature. From what he has already written, as I said, and what he's going to write hereafter in the following chapters... It is correct for us to conclude that what he is expressing here is that he sees himself as having a moral responsibility before God to tell and to teach them what they need to know and learn, not what they may want to hear and learn. But is such thinking correct? Is he thinking the right way about his own moral imperative and responsibility to tell them and to teach them what they really need, Eddie, the meats? I mean, why can't he feed them milk? Why can't he meet them where they're at? That does seem, does it not, brethren, to be a little bit more compassionate, sympathetic, understanding with his weaker brethren? I mean, why can't he simply allow them, brothers and sisters, to remain babies in the word of righteousness? Because after all, babies are still part of the family. We have little Evie in the midst of us today. She is a member of the Hamaker family. Yes, indeed, she's feeble. Yes, she's helpless. Yes, she depends on her family for absolutely everything, but she's still part of the family. And as she gets a little bit older, I don't think Evie is ever going to say, I don't want to be a hammocker anymore. Nor up until this point of this sermonic epistle, were any, do we have any indication where these professors of Jesus were saying that they no longer want to be connected with Jesus. But as they are wanting to demonstrate a connectedness in their profession of faith, there's still something there that's rudimentary, elementary, and small that is dangerous. And that's what this preacher is going to address. But they're not denying Jesus is Lord. 
Why couldn't he let them stay there? Can't he, in other words, just lighten up a little bit? And quit pressing on them to grow and to mature? Well, I think we get an insight of why he is on the right track of challenging them to grow and to mature. Because of something that he says later on in this epistle. I gave it to you in your sermon notes. Later on in Hebrews 13, notice what he writes. And this is the closing of the epistle. He's writing at the close of the epistle just some general admonitions, how to conduct themselves, so forth and so on. And he says to them, obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. He's referring here to the relationship of the church members to their pastors. But notice what he says to help us get some insight here. He says, they watch for your souls, what? As they that must give an account. Beloved, his thinking here of his moral responsibility and the great weight to lead these immature babes in the word of righteousness in truth to tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear, is what? Based upon his understanding that someday he will stand before the thrice holy God and he will have to give an account for when he was given an opportunity by God to speak truth and to take immature Christians and grow them with that truth of whether or not he did it or not. Did he bring the truth, in other words, and execute his dreadful responsibility that the God of all glory and His King Jesus Christ has placed upon Him as a mantle, did He execute that dreadful responsibility with conviction or with compromise? And you know how these things work, don't you? When there is a truth that comes from the Word of God to the center of the mantle of a pulpit and a minister can very easily count the costs and cowardly say to himself, This church can't handle this truth right now. And then he gets in the in the plurality of elder meetings and the deacon or whatever, you know. And you know how these things work. Oh, you know, Pastor, if you preach that, we're going to lose half of the church. What do you think the inspired preacher here in Hebrews would have done? (laughs) He would have laughed at them and he would have said, Brethren, brethren. We have a moral responsibility to preach the unadulterated counsel of God. And God will do the rest. I think that many people who believe that Paul is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews, was inspired to write it, um, would really see perhaps his heartbeat in this moral responsibility when they consider 2 Timothy chapter 4. You have it in your sermon notes there, verses 1-4. through Paul wrote this to a young preacher about his responsibility of giving to the people of God, the church of God, the things that they need. He says, I charge thee before, thee, before God, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now whatever it was, 
that was lying at the root of the purpose of the injunction of this exhortation we have in today's passage, which goes all the way to the end of chapter 6, we know that the inspired writer saw here his moral obligation to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine these early professors of Christianity. And therefore, he and any other minister who is faithful in doing this, I'll go so far as saying any other mature Christian who is faithful in doing this, Beloved, in our midst, we ought to see them as a gift, not a sour grape that needs to be, you know, quiet. No. Where do you see that in the Word of God, brother? Oh, dear sister, I loved what we heard. Wasn't it a blessing to hear from the lips of God's people today? I'm here and I want to be instructed. I want to be taught. That's so different than the the broader milieu of what we get in larger evangelicalism. We're to view one another as our brother's keeper in this minister here in this imperative. He recognizes his great responsibility as a minister, as a mature brother to help them unto that maturity. But not only did he see his own responsibility to do whatever he could to lead them to maturity by God's grace in verse number 3, Notice with me now that he saw it was their own moral responsibility as well. But he doesn't just draw out their own moral responsibility. He gives them practical steps to maturity. And this is what happens in the latter half of verse number 1 into verse number 2. So let's consider now these steps unto maturity. What we find next now in our text is truly, I think, a very precious thing. What we see here is a man who, like the Apostle Paul, saw himself as if it were a caring mother who truly loves her child. And she demonstrates that love by practical and helpful guidance. In other words, a loving mother is going to tell a child that she wants to help disciple unto maturity, do this and don't do that. Gives the boundaries, right? Gives the steps to follow. As you see in your notes, fundamentally what he's going to do in these steps is he's going to require of them that they stop relaying the foundations of the old covenant shadows in their understanding of the completed person and work of the Messiah in the new covenant. That's what we're going to see in these steps. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The doctrine of the teaching of baptism and laying on of hands. He's fundamentally at the base telling them, stop laying the foundation of these old covenant shadows and in your understanding of how they may be connected or still implemented in your worship of Christ. I'm going to seek to demonstrate this to you. I say that this is at the fundamental basis because the theme of this entire letter to the Hebrews has at its core the preaching of the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. So remember, that's the, the, one of the main themes of this entire epistle. In addition to that, the other complementary theme is 
not only is the new covenant in Christ and his headship and his priestly office more superior, but also you must persevere unto the end. And so here he begins to show them steps in maturity that are closely and cannot be separated from old covenant Judaism. Think with me again, who's his original audience? Jews just converted out of centuries and centuries of Judaism into Christianity. And it is quite natural then why he would be mentioning these things that could be exclusive just to Judaism. In other words, they could have these things entirely detached from Christianity and they would be fine Jews. But something's going on here to where he has to tell them these things are preventing you from maturing in the doctrines and the work of Christ, the head of the new covenant, that I've been trying to grow you into and mature you into. And they're the very things that you need to begin to move on and move past. We have seen him already point out their sad condition in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. He's courageously, in verse number 1, charged them unto maturity and his willingness to help them unto maturity. And now he's going to provide them these steps how to do it. The steps of maturity involved, we see first, leaving the elementary teachings of the Messiah and not laying again certain foundations as if it were that are related to six distinct various doctrines connected with Judaism. These doctrines, which he will cover, are very interestingly, however, they're not surprisingly closely connected with Judaism. Topics that these converted Jews would have been intimately familiar with. However, all of these things what he's been seeking to show them, and apparently they have failed to be building upon, is all of these things find their fulfillment in what? The new covenant and Jesus Christ. Now first, step unto maturity for these first century Jews converted out of Judaism. He says, leave the elementary teachings regarding the Messiah. I like how the NASB of 95 translates this first part of this verse. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ. Now, beloved, at first glance, we may be offended at the very thought of suggesting that the teaching of Christ ought to ever be left behind. You read that and you're thinking, why in the world would he be telling them in order to mature, they got to leave behind the teachings of the Messiah? Well, he's not telling them to leave behind the cross work of the Messiah. I know this for two reasons. The first reasons that I have is that from chapter 1 all the way through 5, what has he been doing? He's been only exclusively focusing upon Christ and His cross work and the divine plan of God upon uh, the cross at Calvary. So he's not suggesting here, you don't ever need that again and you need to move on. No, that's silly to interpret that way. And secondly... The reason I believe that he doesn't mean that is because this is a Jewish audience, which is why he's been utilizing up until this point in this sermon so many Old Covenant themes. The wilderness generation. He's been drawing from the Old Testament book of Psalms in his sermon. You've been noticing that. He's using the Arianic priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
All of that to point to the emphasis that these Jews who have been reared in the local synagogue since they were but little boys and girls, they already knew the narrative of the Messiah. They have known the narrative of the Messiah. Or rather, they should have known the narrative of the Messiah. What had been promised in Genesis 3.15 and how redemptive history is demonstrated in pointing forward to the coming Messiah. Now they're professing they have the Messiah. They need to move on past this basic elementary step of the narrative of God's redemptive plan in the Messiah. In other words, they've been learning this stuff, as I said, as kids. And they need to begin to build the house of their understanding of how all of this connects and how all of this works to the glory of Christ, their high priest. John Calvin captures wonderfully, I think, the idea and the foolishness of having a basic elementary understanding of the Messiah and His work upon the cross and only being content with that. Listen to what Calvin says. Quote, In building a house, we must never leave the foundation and yet to always be engaged in laying it over and over again would be ridiculous. As the builder must begin with the foundation, so what? must he go on with his work that the house may be built. Similarly is the case as to us in Christianity. We have the first principles as the foundation, but the higher doctrine ought immediately to follow in order to complete the building. Those who act in such a way are most unreasonable because they remain in the first elements For they purpose to themselves no completion, no maturity, no end, as though a builder spent all his labor foolishly on just the foundation, neglecting to build up the house. We see what the inspired writer is doing. He's saying, guys, ever since you were little ones, your family, our community, the covenantal context of our society has been pointing you to the Messiah I brought the gospel being fulfilled in your ears and you said you received that. But now, you should be building upon that foundation. Not every time you gather on the Lord's Day only talking about just that foundation. Even though as vital as important as it is, Jesus says, He is the chief cornerstone. So we're wrong in understanding that He's telling them or He's implying to them, Tyler, to forget the foundation. But no, now that you have the foundation laid in Christ as this cornerstone, brothers and sisters of the living church of God of Christ, build, grow, mature, search the Scriptures, for they testify of Me. You see, beloved, He was not telling them to forget these first principles, but rather that it was high time for them to move on from the basic elements of the Messiah as taught in Judaism to what the Messiah was now doing. And He was promised to continue to do in and through His church and what He was doing at that time through them. Now notice in the text that closely connected with this first step unto maturity, there's another exhortation. There's several actually. And it begins to say, look at your Bibles, by the word, not to lay again the foundation. Now that key word there, I got it in my notes, is capital letters, again. That's, that's, the, that's the heart of his exhortation. Stop laying again the foundation. 
And the foundation that he wants them to stop laying is three groups of two things. The first, as you see in your notes, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The second, the doctrine of baptism laying on hands. And the third, the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Stop laying again and again and again these foundations. That's going to be pivotal in our understanding of the application toward the end of the message for us today. That word again. Now mentioned already, all of these topics, all of these teachings were significant to Judaism. And they were therefore in and themselves inseparable from the covenantal context in which they were given. So in the Old Covenant, God gave the Jews a means to demonstrate repentance from dead works. What was that means? That means was we bring sacrificial animals to the temple, the priest and the people laid their hand upon the animal, imputing their sins upon the animal. The animal would be sacrificed, and God's wrath against those sins would be appeased, not taken away, but appeased for the time or span of one year. Right? And then there were other things connected in that covenantal context that God provided them. The doctrine of baptism, laying on hands, and the resurrection of the dead. We're going to work through these. Now why do I bring that up? Because while there has been, I noticed in my studies of this, many different interpretations of what could be going on here, of what he's telling them to stop studying, I think, beloved, John Gill nails it on the head. He gets much closer to the heartbeat of what the writer is after than anyone else. Gill says regarding this repentance from dead works, this is not an evangelical Christian repentance, but it's a repentance which arose from and it was signified by the sacrifice of animals. Under the gospel dispensation, these believing Jews, they to what? Repudiate repentance from dead works. And they were supposed to do what? Continue only looking unto Christ. They weren't to be coming again and again and discussing or thinking about repentance from dead works through the sacrificial system and or how that sacrificial system may be incorporated into their new covenant identity through Christ. Stop laying again that foundation. Stop seeking to explore that foundation. You have in Christ all that you need. I believe Gil's getting right to the point. The mention of faith toward God was again Old Covenant language which denoted a belief in God but still lacked a complete belief in the revelation of the Messiah in Christ. Jesus, you remember His words in John 14.1? He told those Jews, ye believe in God, believe also in Me. You see, what's going on here, I'm convinced is that this first century community of professing Christians who came out of Judaism were stumbling, they were uh, remaining stagnant in how these old covenant concepts could possibly still be connected with their newfound new covenant identity in Jesus. Now, I think that it appears here as we get closer to the meaning in the next Uh, thing he tells them to to let go of and to stop building upon. I think that this comes through even more in the direction we're going with this. Notice that he says 
to stop laying again the teaching and the foundation of the doctrine of baptisms, which is plural. You see that in verse number 2. I'm persuaded that he's referring to the old covenant ceremonial washings and ablutions of baptisms and purifications that were performed as outlined in Exodus and in the book of Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 14. He's not here referring to Christian baptism. There's many theologians that believe that what this church was getting wrapped up in was sitting around spending all of their time laying again and again the foundations of what did John's baptism mean? What's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Some believe perhaps that as the early church, when they baptized converts, they used what was called a triune baptism. They dunked three times in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Traditionally now the church, uh, we will just dunk one time and we recite all three names of the Trinity, right? Beloved, the reason I'm convinced that he's not talking about their confusion or their debating, they're laying again the foundation... Uh, instead of growing and maturing about the baptism of John, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, about early Christian baptisms, is three reasons. First of all, the immediate surrounding context. The immediate surrounding context has all Old Covenant emphasis. The second is, as I said earlier, the audience who he's talking to, who would have been, yes, having some trouble with working out a detachment from the old covenant themes and embracing an exclusive new covenant identity which meant abrogating, letting go, stop practicing many old covenant practices. But thirdly, I think that's most convincingly that we're interpreting this and we're handling the right word is that the Greek word itself that's here translated of baptisms is never used in the New Testament of Christian baptism, but it's used of ceremonial washings as it is in Mark 4.12. I think that that's the nail in the coffin. I think that we're beginning to see that we are rightfully understanding His exhortation to them and how they need to leave things behind in order to mature. Regarding, in verse number 2, the teaching of the laying ones of hands, it has no reference, I believe, to the right of the laying on of hands that the apostles gave that we see in Acts to private persons or to officers in the church. Why am I sticking on that interpretation? Because of what I've already said, allowing the immediate context, the audience, and everything else that we've just noticed dictate how I'm understanding this. It is most plausible I'm seeking to convince you to conclude that what he's referring to here is the rite of the laying on of hands that the priest and the people did and performed in the Old Covenant ceremonies in connection with sacrificial animals. John Gill, once again, I, I think he just is getting it so good. He says, believers were no longer to be taught nor learned in this doctrine of imputation of sin by the laying on of hands of sacrificial animals. Why? Since Christ has been made sin for them and has had sins imputed to Him and has borne them in His own body upon the tree. They have to mature past these things. It's causing them to remain immature in the things of Christ in the new covenant which, if not dealt with, we see in verses 4 and 6, could demonstrate they never have truly come to know Christ. And we'll deal with those next week. 
Look here at the second half of verse number 2 of the resurrection of the dead and of the eternal judgment. Now we can rightly conclude that as Jews converted to Christianity, they would have possessed a much greater deal of knowledge regarding these eternal matters than the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles, for the most part, were very suspicious of things in the afterlife, a future state after physical death. However, for these believing Hebrews, they were being admonished not to rest in your already acquired knowledge of the truth of the resurrection and eternal judgment. Don't rest with that knowledge that you would have grown up with and that you have come to believe. No, no, no. Begin to pray. Begin to search the Scriptures understand how all of these things, the resurrection and the eschaton in eternity are connected with your high priest, Jesus Christ. Why would you want to be just content and settled with an understanding that, yeah, physical death isn't forever. We're going to be resurrected and we're going to have eternal life. There's eternal judgment. No, he says, press on and understand how Christ is connected to all these things. All of these things that we briefly looked into were marked as those which would prevent these early Jewish converts from progressing, moving on in their maturity. Now when considering them in and by themselves, they were useful as teachers, right? According to Colossians 2.17, of shadows, the things to come. However, when they are not laid aside, he's telling them, as no longer needed in light of Christ's fullest revelation, they had become to these first century Jewish converts, professing converts, to be very dangerous. Could it be that these early Jewish converts wanted to profess the Messiah, however, still remain with many of these old covenant distinctives, that would not demand them to exclusively change their life in order to be a new covenant visible member in their community. Perhaps the danger that warrants the following warning passages in this chapter is associated with getting the person and the work, the atonement, and the justification of our Lord Jesus Christ wrong which namely is apostasy. What I'm saying is, when you look at the warning passages that are the most sober in all the New Testament that's about to come up in the following verses, and I'm convinced that we're on the right track, that what he's telling them is these things are preventing you from maturing, and all of these things are intimately connected with one's understanding of how they are justified and how that Christ has fully atoned for their sins, and where there is any itsy-bitsy, kids, that's the words we use, if there's any itsy-bitsy confusion about the full atoning work of Christ upon the cross, it's apostasy. It's Christ, we say all the time, and Christ alone. I'm convinced that what he sees happening in this early congregation, which shouldn't be a surprise because it was kind of happening over in the Galatian church too, is that they were tampering with mixing some of these old covenant themes in with or becoming content with the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And that, dear friends, 
to the inspired writer is going to lead them to apostasy. Thus going back to his exhortation, spending all of chapter 1 and 2 showing that he is Christ, the final revelation from God, and that how in the eternal divine plan of God in chapter 2, he has designated that we would be forgiven through his sufferings, So he did all of that to clarify them once again what Christ has done and who he is. And then, why in the world does he interject this rebuke? I believe we're on the right track. The reason is, is because they were tampering with not fully embracing Christ's mediatorial work. And before any one of us looks down our new covenant noses at them and says... Why couldn't they just get it? I mean, why? I mean, really, it was so. I mean, it's all there. Beloved, they had centuries upon centuries, their entire families, their entire communities, and they are being expected not to go to the, to the, to the festival of the tents now. The conclusions you see in Hebrews is this, that the work of Christ and what He has fulfilled in the New Covenant as these New Testament ministers are proclaiming it has direct implications culturally in my life that there now are things that I will not be able to participate in because in so doing I'm still caught in the shadows and not resting as Brother Griss said in his personal testimony in the light. Point of application. Because I know what you guys are thinking. I was thinking the same thing. Well, you know, I'm not a first century Jew. I, I, you know, I, I'm not, I haven't been converted out of Judaism, even though there is some of that in our day and age. How does this apply to me? Beloved, be ever so careful. When you have ministries, I've said this oftentimes because it's on the rise within the new evangelical community. When you have on the rise anyone seeking to blend old covenant Judaism with Christianity, well, Pastor Doc, how would they do that? I'll tell you how they do it. They get you thinking that somehow or another your Christianity is shortchanged. Your understanding, young man, of theology is shortchanged. If, if, if you don't really uh, participate in the, the, the festival of the booths and you go pitch a tent like the Assemblies of God denomination around the world do at the time of the Jewish expression and celebration of the pitching of the tent. Or, or how about this? You get a, a brother and you know what? His heart's probably sincere and as we demonstrated earlier today, we have a responsibility to bring the brother aside and say, hey brother, you know why are you talking like that? What if you get a dear-hearted brother in your church that wants to begin to propagate the Christian Seder? You're probably thinking, what's the Christian Seder? I didn't know either until I had to interact with it. It's this idea that we take the Old Testament Passover, we add Christian elements to it, Christian language, and we practice it almost as if they did. But here's the kicker of it. There's a bunch of things added that's not even in Scripture in their ceremony. You see, the blending of Judaism with New Testament, New Covenant Christianity can crack the door. Brothers and sisters, give it one generation, give it two generations, and we as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, like this preacher from Hebrews, we need to be watching these things with razor sharpness, brothers and sisters. 
They don't want to throw up red flags. Why in the world would you want to do that? We have the Lord's Supper. Why in the world do you want to go fly to Palestine and pitch a tent over there and participate with a bunch of people on the festival of the tents when we have the tabernacle of the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul, Paul, Peter, and James taught us. You see? That's how you would apply this. Why is it that it seems as though in some pockets of evangelicalism we're going backward to the very immature elementary things that the writer of Hebrews was inspired to warn these professing believers that they need to move past. You see, the foolishness, as Calvin said, of rebuilding over and over again. Well, he comes to verse 3. And fully understanding the reality of those who like the seed in the parable of our Lord Jesus in the book of Matthew that falls upon stony places, that even will hear the word and for a time greatly rejoice in the word, but has no root. The writer we see in verse 3, what's he say? Very wisely, very biblically. He says, this will we do. This we will achieve. This, notice, notice the, the plural pronoun, and we, he sees himself there with them, helping them. This we will do if God permits. He understands that any step that they take in the hard sacrifice of separating themselves from some of these old covenant distinctives, he understands that they first and foremost have to fall on their face before God and ask for God's blessing, ask for God's grace, ask for God's help. Beloved, he's not, he's not as if it were an Arminian in verses 1 and 2 exhorting them to only do anything. And then in verse 3 he turns into a Calvinist and says we can't do it only if God permits it. Of course God permits it. And he's not saying this in verse number 3 like uh, some higher pietistic expression, you know, uh, well, if the Lord wills. No, no, he's saying this we will do. We can have confidence we will do this if God permits it. Well, does God permit it? Of course God permits it, beloved. Read verse, chapters 1 through 5. Do, do we have to? Let's just do it. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 16. Does God permit it? Will He give them the strength to do it? What He's exhorting them to do? Well, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, we don't have a high priest which can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows it's going to be hard. He knows and he understands what he's calling you to do to move on to maturity. You spent years, the last 15 if theologians correct, in stagnant infancy. But it's time to move on. It's time to let these things go. He's, he understands. He knows what he's asking. And verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This will we do if God permits. He's there every step of the way, no matter what He asks you in your growth, your Christian maturity, your walk with Him. Of course He's there. And it rests in His sovereign hands. That is why when the people joined the church this morning, what did we do? We committed it to the Lord. Grizz can get up here and say, oh, the wax elephant, and that was wax elephant, brother, by the way. 
He can wax Ellen all he, all he wants. Maria too. Sounded wonderful. I'd get up here and talk at one. But brothers and sisters, we commit these things to God. Why? Because we know as grid testified, we know ourselves. That we are yet sinners to save by grace and need a daily of His sovereign grace in our lives to help us to be consistent and faithful in following Him. One day, without His sustaining grace, one day, to use hyperbole, I'd be right back where I was. It is His preserving hand, brothers and sisters. What is it in your life this morning that maybe some firm foundations have been laid in your Christianity, but it's time for you to start building the first level. You've come to a blessed saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and perhaps the foundation's been laid and your first level's been decked. And you know absolutely everything there is to know about Christian apologetics. I mean, you know about all the fossil records. You know about all... You can just make an atheist, evolutionist... I mean, you can just make him look pathetic in a debate. Maybe that's you. But maybe that's all you know. Brothers and sisters, as, as, as I'm seeking to apply this today, move on in your understanding of the great, blessed, immeasurable doctrines of Christ and His church. Are you that brother or sister in here this morning that you know absolutely every single new age, you know, metaphysical, mystical, uh, in, in, you know, coming, mixing in with Christianity, all that new age stuff? You know, and maybe you're that person. And, and, you, and you can razor sharp debate that and, and, and spell that out and help people come out. Or, or you know, I remember uh, at London Reformed Baptist Seminary, there was Dr. Peter Masters, and he always said there was always that brother in the church. And God, God be blessed that there was this brother. But there was always this brother in the church that knew absolutely every single thing about Roman Catholicism. You know? And she's still the harlot. She's still the Antichrist. But that's all he knew. He didn't know nothing else. We sometimes, as the people of God, we get our niche doctrines, don't we? And we become experts in them. I mean, for crying out loud, some of us can write a PhD on some of these things. But, if you tiptoe out of that circle, you see, this person really doesn't know that much more about their Bibles than about the expansion of Christ. I think that the application here, seeing that none of us are first century Jews, lies right there. Brothers and sisters, let us press on in exercising our senses in the doctrines and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never find the bottom. You will never exhaust His glory. And you will never, ever be able to sufficiently, no matter how long you study, proclaim His magnificence. You still will always, as I did before I come up, oh God, Help me to put into words the glory and the deep riches that are here in this text. Because I'm but a fumbling man. Let your spirit take these words and apply it to our lives and our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we once again come before you and with humble hearts, Lord, we confess that you are good, you are holy. You are most wise. You are sovereign, O oh God, and you are good to your people. We thank you. We thank you that you have given us the first principles of your oracles in Christ. 
Oh, how we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us in according to your divine wisdom in the day and age in which we live. And you have given us eyes to see that Christ is the promised Messiah and that Christ is resurrected from the dead and Christ is still in his heavenly session building his church upon earth. We thank you for these things. And Lord, for any of us, especially those of us, Lord, who have been converted and walking with thee for any period of time, perhaps we have become settled in some of our pet doctrines and Lord, we have not allowed ourselves, as the text says, our senses to be stretched and exercised. Would you, O God, lead and guide in your word to the sublime depths of the truth that are contained within your holiness, within your being, and especially as they are revealed to us through the face of your beloved Son, Jesus. Grow us, mature us. Help us, O Lord, to be the bulwarks against any creeping air that may come into your churches. Help us to be salt and light, Lord, we pray. Use us for your glory. But this, O Lord, we know can only be done if you and you alone demonstrate, O God, your grace toward us. And you, Father, enable us and help us. We confess to you, O God, our weakness. We confess to you before your holy, your thrice holy throne. We confess to you our sins. And we confess that we believe that the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven and cleansed us of these sins. Now, O God, help us to walk in the newness of life. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to receive the dual responsibility we saw in our text today, to act as if it were as the mature, patient, long-suffering Christian, along with our brothers and sisters, and help us to see, no matter how long we've been converted, ourselves as still yet immature. Help us to see our duty and our responsibility to grow, to be nourished by your word, guided by your spirit. We trust you will do all these things unto your own glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.